You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respect to elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of the First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement, and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. That's what you get for Monday breakfast now. It's just perfectly done and illustrated. Um, yeah, it's Alice in the studio. And Ella, just the two of us manning the desk this morning. Yes, yeah. And how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Yeah, seeing, um, I think I spent the first couple of weeks out of lockdown in sort of a state of shock, but mm-hmm. I feel like I've kicked into action the last couple of weeks. So it's yep. been nice to be busy, be out there. Had a very nice road trip, so that's helped. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, I had the same um, a couple of weeks ago too now. So maybe a week and a bit ago, went away went out of Melbourne, went into the Grampians, had some moment out in nature. And I was yep, like, okay, <laughs> I'm alive. I'm still alive. Yeah, it was definitely necessary. But um, yeah, we'll, we've got a bit of a, a show lined up. We do have um, Liz Jones with us, in the st- well, live on the phone um, from La Mama Theatre. So she's going to be speaking to us about really... Checking in from the last time we spoke to to the theatre group, they were raising funds back in April. So we want to see how that went um, and kind of what the COVID recovery is looking like for that theatre. Um, La Mama, a big friend of 3CR. So really looking forward to speaking to Liz later. And that's at 8.15. And then at 7.20, we're going to hear an interview um, by Claudia who is continuing the 16-day of action against gender-based violence with that piece. So we'll be tuning into that at 20 past seven. And yeah. then from, from then, we've got a couple more of the speeches that we're going to play from the Slutwalk broadcast that Ella and I helped um, out at. And so one of them that we're playing today is the one that you helped with. Yeah, so we're going to hear from Shana Bremner. Um, from End Rape on Campus. Um, so, yeah, she did a little speech for Slot Walk and it will be, yeah, good to take another listen to yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll also play Jess Gleason's speech as well. But um, just on that on that subject, I, I received some really great news over the weekend. So <laughs> um, it's something that's close to, been very close to my heart for a very long time. Um, but the Oxford Advanced Learners Dictionary has finally removed the Essex girl as a noun ah. from the dictionary. <laughs> so this is the this is the dictionary that is for um, non-native speakers who are learning the language. It's not being removed from the Oxford Dictionary because they've said that that is a historical reflection on the English language and so it will remain in there. But the term that has been removed from the Oxford Advanced Learners Dictionary 
um, is as follows. So Essex girl, a name used especially in jokes to refer to a type of young woman who is not intelligent, dresses badly, talks in a loud and ugly way and is very willing to have sex. Um, So Essex girls, I think are very happy (laughs) that that term has now been removed um, and it will, yeah, inevitably, well, we hope anyway, not be such a common insult um, to, yeah, I mean, which affects every single woman that is in Essex. Yeah, absolutely. And at least this will hopefully um, delegitimise the term. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We we hope so. It's, just, it's I can understand the Oxford Dictionary's reason for saying that it's going to remain in the, the, um, the kind of official dictionary as a reflection of language. But it, I don't know, that still sits really uncomfortably with me. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I, I feel like you could do lots of um, similar comparisons of words that don't need to have a place in the yeah, dictionary yeah. either. Um, or at least give... Better in a history yeah, rather than... Yeah, at least give a context that it's that it's um, a, a social or cultural stereotype that is fundamentally not true. Like, to have it in the dictionary without even any context to say that this isn't true or this is false or... It's not a reflection on the whole of the people that are from that county. Do like um, Twitter at the moment? They won't uh, remove it, but they'll at least put a yeah, line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's probably necessary. But yeah, so that was some good news over the weekend, um, and it really ties in well with the sixteen day of the sixteen days of activism against gender based violence because. It is, um, I mean, the UK is full of stereotypes and class and real um, oppression to to working class people. And so the Essex girl is tied up in that as well. So that's a real win for for us from Essex. Definitely. I'm happy about that. I'm happy for you. Thank you. Thank you. I know. Big claps for everyone who was involved in that campaign and the activism around that. So, yeah, I think we're going to head to a song now. And we've got gonna go for it's me and Ellen's studio <laughs> we'll go for um since i left you with the avalanches
think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun, and which way the wind blows. You're tuned into 3CR listening to the Monday Breakfast Show. I'm Ella here with Alice. And just before the break, we heard the avalanches with Since I Left You. And next up, we're going to take a listen back to a speech we played on 3CR's program Slut Walk, which was broadcast last Sunday. Um, so we're going to hear from Shana Bremner, who I recorded, actually. And Shana is the founder and co-director of NRAPE on Campus, um, a volunteer-run organisation that primarily works to end sexual violence at Australian universities and residential colleges through the provision of direct support for survivors and the communities prevention through education and by advocating for policy reform at the campus, state and federal levels. And when she was speaking, uh, she speaks about the Let Her Speak and Let Us Speak campaign, uh, which is currently campaigning to have some laws changed in Victoria um, around victims of sexual assault speaking out um, under their own names. But I'll let Shana take it away. (laughs) My name's Shana Bremner and I'm the founder and co-director of NRAPE on Campus Australia. I live and work on the stolen lands of the Ghana people and I pay my respects to elders past and present and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded. I think it's fairly obvious from the name of our organisation, but I will be discussing issues relating to sexual assault, rape and death today. I wanted to just take a minute to remind everybody that it's okay to tune out, to switch off, to do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself and that support is available from 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732. Before I go any further, I also wanted to say to any survivors out there that we believe you. What happened to you was not your fault and you're not alone. If you're not familiar with the work that we do, EROC Australia is a volunteer-run not-for-profit organisation that provides support to students who have been impacted by sexual violence within higher education settings. You might, however, be a little bit more familiar with our work on the Let Her Speak campaigns in Tasmania and the Northern Territory, and more recently, our work on the Let Us Speak campaign in Victoria. Those campaigns were shamefully necessary due to legislation in each jurisdiction that prohibited survivors whose offenders had been found guilty from speaking out using their real names unless they obtained a court order. Until those laws were changed, and without that court order, Almost anyone who identified a survivor, including the media and the survivor themselves, faced large fines or even imprisonment. We launched the Let Her Speak and the Let Us Speak campaigns not only to overturn what were some spectacularly shitty laws, but as a way to raise funds. We needed to raise those funds because getting a court order just to be able to speak with your own name is not only an incredibly re-traumatizing process, but it can also be prohibitively expensive for most people. Even with a simple enough case, the costs quickly add up. 
we were incredibly grateful to see how many people jumped right in and sent some amazing donations to us. And I think it was our most successful fundraising campaign to date. We first discovered the changes to Victoria's Judicial Proceedings Reports Act because of one incredible survivor. At first, we had to refer to her as Maggie and her deceased stepsister as Kate. We couldn't name the man who had spent years raping them when they were children and then murdered Kate after she reported him to the police because doing so might inadvertently identify the two women involved. That man was Maggie's dad. And today I can tell you that Maggie's real name is Jamie Lee Page. Her stepsister's name was Carol. The man who spent years raping them and eventually murdered Carol was David Hodson. It took an eight month court battle and tens of thousands of dollars for Jamie to win the right to tell her story. But this only came after Victorian courts told her lawyers that she would need to seek her father's permission to reveal her own name. When she refused to do that, and understandably so, the court forwarded her application to him anyway. The person who forwarded that application to the man that raped Jamie and murdered her sister is now the person that's in charge of receiving any applications for court orders in Victoria. At midnight on the 18th of November, Jamie's law came into force. Sexual assault survivors in Victoria whose offenders have been convicted will now be able to publish their own identity or speak to the media using their real names if they're over the age of 18, provide written consent, have capacity to make decisions, and provided they don't identify another survivor without permission. The thing I find so frustrating about all of this, I mean, aside from the obvious horrendousness of the situation, is that it takes a village to protect an abuser. Every single person who turns away, pretends they didn't know, fails to take any action, or then passes a law like the ones we've just seen in Victoria, forms part of that village. The thing is though, we didn't need laws to silence survivors because society already does that. We live in a world that shames us into staying quiet it terrifies us into staying quiet and it disbelieves us into staying quiet. What I have seen come out of this campaign though is let us speak reminds us that the fear shouldn't belong to us. It should belong to perpetrators. It reminds us the shame does not belong to us. That sits squarely at the feet of perpetrators and the people in the systems that enable them. We're done being silenced and we're done being afraid. What we've seen through Let Us Speak and Let Her Speak is that we can achieve anything when people believe survivors. It's that simple. It comes down to believing us. These campaigns have shown us what we can achieve when enough of us come together and say that enough is enough. Now that we've achieved this law reform and there is still a little ways to go in some of the other aspects of it, we really need to take that momentum and energy and extend it to other groups, other laws, to other institutions, because the fight isn't over. Whilst these laws may have changed, it doesn't change the fact that women are still being assaulted, women are still being raped and women are still being murdered. The fight isn't over, it's just beginning. We're not going anywhere and perpetrators and the institutions that protect them should know to expect us. Thank you. That was Shana Bremner from End Rape on Campus speaking on 3CR's Slutfest program. Slutwalk program, sorry. Slutfest was earlier in the year. Um, now we're going to go to a track from Ponyface. Uh, we've got For Your Love. Mm-hmm. 
was Pony Face for Your Love. They're a Melbourne band as well. Um, I think we got that CD delivered uh, to us because we play such great tunes on the Monday Breakfast Show. <laughs> um, and so now we're going to take a listen to Judith Peppard, our good friend, um, and her interview with Jess Gleason, who um, speaks about her involvement in Slut Walk. And Jess has been a part of the movement for seven years in Melbourne. So she's she's really been there for uh, for a really long time. And she tells Judith about that experience. I really wanted to try and get involved in organising Slut Walk as a way to understand it a little more, but also because I really strongly believed in its core purpose of uh, ending victim blaming and slut shaming. And part of joining that was to get more of an insight into its purposes and into why we did what we did, which I knew I had a personal answer for, but I wanted to understand it on a more collective level. Can you just reflect on Slut Walk and how it's changed over the seven years you've been involved? Have you seen changes? I have. To start with Slut Walk on the Melbourne base level and on the organising team level, it's been beautiful to see people continuing to step up. My role was very much one of the first people to receive that baton, if you will, of the very much the original organising team, Karen Pickering and a few others who started Slut Walk in Melbourne. And so I and a few others very much formed that next generation of people who undertook Slut Walk. And so to see people come forward again and take that on after this has been really refreshing. There's nothing worse, I think, for a movement to remain stagnant than to have the same people doing it year after year after year because you don't get that diversity of opinion and consistency challenges that you need when you're doing activism and having people bringing different opinions in. And I think Slutwalk has done that really well. So that's been wonderful to see that on that level of Slutwalk Melbourne. On a more collective level, seeing how Slutwalk and to an extent other forms of feminist activism have changed things. Change is a hard thing to understand or measure because it, it kind of creeps up on us and it's not as though we have one or two or three slut walks and suddenly we've changed everyone's minds about things like victim blaming or slut shaming. It's an ongoing sort of project and slut walk is one of many different groups and many different people that contribute to that. So they do one part of the puzzle and one specific bit of that puzzle and they do it incredibly well as do other groups. But we, we get to see changes like how language is used in the media when talking about people who have experienced violence we don't get as much victim blaming we see a real change in attitudes from police at least on the level when they're talking to the media they know that there's a level of accountability there you know would hesitate to say that the media and that the police are perfect they are far from perfect but on some levels at least we are seeing some really slow at least gestures towards change we're, we're definitely nowhere near the finish line but it's a nice place to at least start from compared to where we were 10 years or so ago. Yes. And in your writing, you've written about intersectionality uh, within Slut Walk, but generally, can you just say what you mean by intersectionality and how that looks in Slut Walk? So intersectionality in any respect, not just in feminism, but it's an understanding that there are different levels and layers and intersections of oppression that someone may experience. So within feminism, it's considered from the perspective of women of colour experiencing different forms of oppression compared to 
white women, trans women experiencing different levels of oppression compared to cis women, how that plays out in Slatwalk is just a consistent acknowledgement of needing, as I said earlier, the different voices and the different experiences of people in order to ensure that we're getting all of the ideas and understandings both on the table, but also ensuring that we acknowledge where appropriate to do so, how victim blaming and slut shaming affect different people in different ways. So Slutwalk, although it is predominantly run by and is for women, it is more broadly for survivors. So we do, of course, have men that come to Slutwalk who are survivors as well. They're not necessarily as prominent, but that's down to percentages more than anything else, but they are there. And we, of course, also have non-binary people as well. So people that identify as gender non-conforming come along. What Slutwalk tries to do, as I think most good feminist movements would try to do, is consider how the same issue affects different people in different ways and what the root cause of that is, which in this case is back to victim blaming and slut shaming. So it's the same problem. We just see different impacts of it depending on who you are and where you come from. How important has social media been to feminist activism? Social media at its best, and it is often not at its best, but when it is at its best, it acts as a form of consciousness raising. So it acts as a way to bring together different forms of knowledge and different experiences for other people to read about and learn about and therefore act on if they can and in what capacity they are able to. So feminism in that respect has really used social media effectively for that. The downside at the same time, of course, is that there is the endless parade of harassment and trolls and all of these things, which social media is just rife with. And Slutwalk is no exception to that. We do have a lot of those forms of experience. At its best, social media can aid these campaigns. At its worst, social media means that the organisers are prone to things like burnout. And that's something that, you know, we need to consider when we look at social media and how it's set up more broadly. But social media and the internet as a whole have allowed women to become more connected and understand more about each other's experiences. Yes. And the future, what do you hope for the future? The idea for the future, of course, is that Slutwalk ceases to exist because we've done it all and everyone is aware of the terribleness of victim blaming and slut shaming and we've achieved our goal. But seeing that after 10 years, we're just now starting to see some small indications of changes in our local media on the back of the horror that has been the last 10 years for women's rights generally, I would say that unfortunately, if there is still room for Slutwalk and for other feminist movements and that it's incredibly important that they do keep going, ensuring that there are more people that can be incorporated into that tent and be drawn into the message of slut walk. And we just heard from Jess Gleason and Judith Peppard. Um, and that's just such a fantastic broadcast, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah, I'm so glad that we were both able to be a part of that. We were both on the production team um, and, yeah, it was a, an incredible show. So I'm so glad that Monday Breakfast can offer a couple of little snippets for the listeners that might not have tuned in a couple of Sundays ago um, to that slut walk broadcast. And yeah, especially when we weren't actually able to walk in person. Yes, yeah, yes. It was very strange um, recording these rallying speeches um, yeah. alone in our rooms. But, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and um, I think I don't think our own cheering was encouraged at that point. So I was like, I'm, I'm not going to say anything here, but um, I'm, I agree. <laughs> Everything you say, I, I agree. To. Nodding along. Nodding along. Yes, encouragingly. But um, now we're going to hear a... a um, 
a discussion that Claudia brings to us today. So Claudia is going to present a um, discussion on, on sexual exploitation and abuse by international military and civilian peacekeepers. And this is um, brought to you by Latrobe Speakers today. Continuing our coverage of 16 days of action against gender-based violence, we're going to hear a very serious discussion about gender inequality and sexual misconduct within the international peacekeeping community. We'll be hearing from Dr Jasmine Kim Westendorf this morning. She's a senior lecturer in international relations at La Trobe University and has carried out research in Bosnia, Timor-Leste, and with United Nations and humanitarian communities. She has just published her second book titled Violating Peace, Sex, Aid and Peacekeeping, which examines sexual misconduct by personnel doing humanitarian and peacekeeping work in foreign countries. And a warning to listeners, this discussion contains references to sexual violence, including rape. If this may be triggering for you, please tune out or call Lifeline for support. Dr Jasmine Kim Westendorf begins by discussing the impact of sexual violence, why it goes beyond the individual to undermine the whole purpose and legitimacy of the peacekeeping endeavour. The whole UN peacekeeping project is designed around uh, five core goals. One is around protecting civilians from armed conflict. The second is to prevent conflicts in order to reduce human suffering, build stable and prosperous societies, enable people to uh, reach their full potential. The third goal is around strengthening the rule of law and security institutions. The fourth is around protecting and promoting human rights. And the fifth is about empowering women to participate in political processes and to advocate for women's inclusion at all levels of those processes. Sexual exploitation and abuse may seem like an issue that just happens at the individual level, but it critically undermines each of those five very lofty goals that peacekeeping operations are deployed um, in, in service of. In my research, what I've documented is how this occurs on three main levels. The first is on the individual, the community and the family level. These are, as I said at the start, these are human rights abuses, human rights and the, the um, protection and pursuit of human rights is a critical mandate of the United Nations broadly, but also of peacekeeping operations. And these abuses directly undermine and violate those human rights. They also set in train processes that cause further violations of human rights. Um, so in Timor-Leste, for example, uh, I um, documented cases where women and children who were abused by international personnel were forced out of their families as a result of the stigma associated with, with, with sexual violence. They were pushed into larger towns or into Dili, the capital, where they then um, had to find a way for themselves, uh, which in many cases meant that they ended up in uh, sex work and in prostitution, which created um, opportunities for them to experience further human rights violations sometimes by the same international personnel. So Scarlet Timor, the, uh, the sex worker collective in Dili, um, has documented how international personnel, because they were paying higher rates for sex services, demanded to um, not use protection, which led to higher rates of HIV and other STIs, and were also more violent than um, than local people who might be um, interacting with those those women. That's something that goes beyond just Timor Leste. It's something that I've documented and that has been documented in uh, in um, all 
peacekeeping operations where this particular type of abuse and exploitation occurs. The other big issue in Timor on that individual family level was around the birth of peace babies, um, which is a term that's not actually quite as widely used outside of Timor-Leste. It seems to really reflect the particularities of what happened in Timor-Leste where people um, who were part of the international mission embarked on consensual relationships with local women that were characterised by extreme imbalance of power. They, um, there was an assumption that those relationships would stick. Um, uh, children were born and then fathers left and women were abandoned. And the deep hurt and sense of betrayal that the community as a whole felt about the disrespect in that that type of behaviour was palpable in the number of people who spoke to me about this as a phenomenon before they even spoke about some of the really violent and egregious acts of abuse and exploitation um, that might hit the uh, hit headlines perhaps before something like Peace Babies would. The second level, which is really critical here, which follows on, is about how the perpetration of abuse and exploitation embeds cultures and economies of abuse and exploitation in post-war states. So there's an impact on the structural level. So, for instance, in Timor-Leste, where peacekeepers themselves set up um, bars for, uh, they were called karaoke bars, but where um, they were buying uh, sex off women and children um, and where women and children were being abused and exploited and trafficked in many cases, um, they would work with local taxi drivers in order to procure women and children to provide those services or, or to rape, um, almost sort of in real time. That then meant that taxi drivers and other men and boys were brought into these networks because they were also profiting from that exploitation and abuse. Those networks shifted but became solidified essentially um, as the international presence uh, changed and as the peacekeepers withdrew and as other international personnel or business communities moved in. So that remains a, a significant issue that was seeded by the presence of peacekeepers in their initial abuses and exploitation, but has created these cultures and economies that have far outlasted their presence. <clears throat> there are many more examples of that. Uh, and then finally, on the operational level, these forms of these types of behaviour, they undermine, they create mistrust between the local population and the international community. And they also create mistrust and conflict within the international community. Uh, so there were instances in Timor, for instance, of Australian and Jordanian troops literally um, coming to blows, pulling their guns on one another and being unable to work together as part of the peacekeeping operation because um, the Australian uh, contingent knew of really egregious abuses that were being perpetrated by their Jordanian counterparts. Um, so that to me says that it's, it's not just an issue in terms of the relationships externally to the peace operation, but it critically undermines what we know is important in a peacekeeping operation, which is that contingents are able to work with one another and work collectively in pursuit of the goals of peacekeeping. The last long-term impact I won't go into because we spoke about it earlier, but is about the, the, the way these abuses undermine broadly the capacity and credibility of international personnel. And that's something where the implications for the broader Asia region is really important because um, communities outside of, for instance, Timor-Leste, see these abuses reported and they are also mistrustful of peacekeepers or international personnel um, and that affects the way they as a community will interact with projects or with, um, uh, with, with peace processes, with humanitarian processes uh, and with the United Nations and the humanitarian community more broadly. That was Dr Jasmine Kim Westendorf, author of Violating Peace, Sex, Aid and Peacekeeping, talking about the way 
in which incidents of sexual exploitation and abuse undermine trust in humanitarian operations and contribute to a culture of abuse within communities that can continue long after the life of the peacekeeping mission. Next up, we're going to hear from Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer. She's the Director of the Policy Innovation Hub at Griffith University, and she questions the patriarchal model of peacekeeping operations and asks, is there a larger leadership role for women in peacekeeping? We have got an automatic reflex that the inter- the first interveners in a dangerous conflict, post-conflict situation should be military men. So the way to deal with armed conflict is to send different armed men, and they are mostly armed men, right? So this, this I think, Jasmine Kim's book highlights that maybe the logic here is flawed. I, I always have a joke that when I'm on the head of the UN, I'm going to just flood the world with crack teams of feminist anthropologists, right? That's not a joke, right? We, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan in police as a better responder than military. Um, I'm also a fan in, you know, saying, you know, my, most of my field experience um, that's in this book, that's relevant to this book, is the Timor example I saw those shirts, you know, feel safe tonight, sleep with the peacekeeper. It made me want to completely wretch. Um, and there were some, I, I don't think you can overcome the power imbalance in some of those scenarios. I don't think it's possible. I don't think, and that in Timor was a case where the UN was the government. So it wasn't, it was a transition. It was the transitional administration. It was the government. It was a UN-run mission. If we can't get it right in Timor, we're not going to get it right anywhere else, right? The, the lines of accountability towards the UN were stronger than they've been in many other missions. And there was still this inability to deal with these issues in a way that that I totally agree, I think undermined um, undermined the, the, the success of the mandate and brought into disrepute the UN mandate, as well as several of the contributing countries. It's actually very hard to get countries to contribute now, peacekeeping forces. And so I think that's led to some of these issues as well. But I think we have to rethink, you know, why is it a brilliant idea to send large groups of armed men into a situation a post-conflict situation is it is it the best we've got is it the best tactic we have you know i think we have to keep trying to flip uh the way we think about post-conflict justice or we're never going to make any progress so when i think about the sorts of contempt i saw displayed towards timorese people by the folk who were meant to be there to you know whose whole job whose heavy pay packets were all there to help those people it was disturbing and I'm including in that I'm afraid my own cohort aid workers and humanitarian workers you know outside the military at the time um so you know we, we have some we have some deep lessons to learn in the humanitarian uh, community uh the other thing I thought was when when I was experiencing it the same in Somalia and the same in Afghanistan these ideas of um the cognitive dissonance it creates in the local population. You know, you're you're meant to be, you're meant to be the ones who are going to save us. And I, I think there's some really great international relations work um, by Suzanne Carstead about post-conflict justice, where she 
she talks to many, many, many populations about how they feel. And there's always this idea with international interveners that people are making complicated judgments about, should I trust these people? And will they really be here? They're going to leave and we're going to be left with the problems we had before. So there's a lot of complicated trust negotiations going on between the interveners and the local community. You see that very clearly in Afghanistan, but you saw it in Timor too, you know, a complicated relationship to these people are going to leave and then what do I do? How do I navigate the people that are left behind? Uh, and so in that kind of scenario, you have to be demonstrating your bona fides all the time as an international intervener. If you cannot do that, if you are in fact seen as part of the problem, uh, you know, I've been crying about this all week with the, with the special forces issues in Afghanistan, which we knew were coming for years. All my Afghan colleagues telling me, you know, you're doing the Taliban's work here. You, you have just done the Taliban's work. You know, you've undermined all the trust in the international community that people have had. You've dealt with their worst fears that maybe these people are just the same as the others. Um, you're dealing with people whose social contract has been broken by conflict and trying to build up that trust again is, is very difficult. So I had so many resonances. But basically, I guess I look back on Timor, I look back on Somalia, I think, what if we'd given that money, all that money that was spent dealing with those international peacekeepers and we'd given it to local women's organisations? There is always a choice about what you fund and about what you choose to support. And I'm very heartened that the humanitarian community is starting to think more about first responders and how they are the most important link in the humanitarian chain. You know, we didn't have that thinking back in the day and it's evolving and I'm very happy to see that evolving. Um, and I think it's the same here. You know, the most important actors in post-conflict justice are the local communities. And, you know, I think we just have to keep turning that conversation back to how are we supporting local communities and how are we going to get out of their way if we have to. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really, really love the part of the book that says it's, it, sexual exploitation is a wider symptom of contempt for and othering of the local population. It comes with racism, it comes with lack of empathy, it comes with a sense that these people for whom you are perhaps putting yourself in danger as a peacekeeper are not worth the sacrifice. Uh, I heard a lot of that language as well. You know, why am I here putting myself in danger to, to help these people? So I think we need to deal with a much more complicated power dynamic than we have been yet um, dealing. And I, and I will also, just one last point is, the book is so similar to the wonderful work I've seen done on sexual violence within militaries, as Helen pointed out. So we're kind of exporting this pathology when we send international peacekeepers no, mili no professional military has dealt with gender equality inside its ranks properly as yet. And so this is why I keep thinking to myself, why do we then keep thinking that these peace peacekeepers will treat those women with respect when they're not treating their own colleagues with respect, let alone local Australian women? So, you know, until we figure something like that out, um, I mean, I think this kind of crude, there's a rotten apple approach to SEAs is really wrong. The, there's something wrong with the barrel. I think we've got to figure that out. I can't believe it's taken us this long, but there's something wrong with the barrel, right? There's not rotten apples in it. Um, you know, there's a beautiful um, book by Kathleen Frank, actually, from New York University, and she says, 
post-conflict is often a remasculinization time and a mm-hmm. time of retrenchment because in Timor it was so visible. You know, the men came down from the mountains, uh, you know, the Falantil, the international peacekeepers came pouring in. For many of the contingents, Bangladesh, Jordan, Japan, they were all male contingents. Most of the senior UN staff were men. There was all of these kind of um, t- enormously tall men everywhere all of a sudden um, and you know I can see I can see how frightening that must have been for most of the, the local teamaries it was terrifying and they were so traumatized the local teamaries population and in those beginning years and there was sort of no allowance made for that kind of trauma that people were experiencing either mm-hmm. so there was so many things we did wrong I would like to say that we did them better in Solomon Islands I don't think that's the case um, again, a very masculine, boots-in kind of area in, in my, my own work in um, Afghanistan is looking at the butcher-butsy phenomenon. Um, you know, I often think we get too, too caught up in the brand or the narrative of a successful mission and ignore anything that has a counter-narrative. And, uh, and you know, this, this kind of brand UN success, you know, it's got to be authentic or it's not worth protecting. Important observations there from Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer, Director of the Policy Innovation Hub at Griffith University, talking about how we change the gender status quo in international peacekeeping operations. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. I'm Claudia, and this morning we've been listening to a number of experts talking about a very serious issue sexual exploitation and abuse within humanitarian operations. This is part of a discussion that was held by La Trobe University and we acknowledge and thank them for sharing it with us today. So we're going to play a short announcement now and then return to our discussion on gender violence with a provocative question. Are soldiers fit to be carrying out peacekeeping work? Stay tuned. The Melbourne Armenian community is raising humanitarian and development funds to help the community back home as they struggle with the devastating impacts of war and conflict. Please consider donating to the Hayastan All-Armenian Fund. For more details, go to www.himnadram.org forward slash en forward slash donate alternatively you can make a donation by way of direct deposit into the Hayastan all armenian fund account at the national australia bank bsb number 083230 account number 946770823 the Hayastan all armenian fund is a not-for-profit organization delivering education, healthcare, infrastructure, rural development and housing projects in Armenia. The Armenian General Benevolent Union is a 3CR affiliate and supporter. Now it's back to our discussion on sexual violence in peacekeeping and humanitarian missions and a question that goes to the core of peacekeeping work. Uh, We have our next question is from 
uh, a friend of our department, Jasmine Geis, uh, and his question is whether soldiers can be peacekeepers. Soldiers undergo extensive training with an emphasis on dehumanisation of the enemy. Peacekeeping, on the other hand, is the first step in a long process of humanisation. I think that's a really important point. I think one of the... I think there's sort of a structural issue to how that that or and also a temporal issue explanation here. Um, peacekeeping, I don't think, was something that was designed. It, it was never designed ahead of time. It's something that you the UN has worked out on the fly in response to really terrible situations, where in particular civilians um, and civilian populations are at, at great risk of harm um, and death uh, or um, extermination, you know, genocide and so on. Uh, and that has meant that the peacekeeping doctrine, if you will, or the way these operations work is not the most coherent um, approach necessarily, not necessarily the best approach. But once you're on a set of tracks and once you've created institutions around that and departments and organisations and models and, you know, lessons learned, it's very hard to get off those tracks and move in a different direction. Mm. I think it's important here to also recognise that the trend of giving peacekeepers everything to do is not something we just see in peacekeeping. We've seen it in police forces around the world where, you know, there's a greater understanding of the social dynamics of family violence and so... Who do we give that work to? We give it to police. You know, there's a greater understanding of uh, the need to deal with drugs and addiction and it's given to police. The same has happened in the peacekeeping world, that as we've understood the need to improve um, uh, the um, participation of women, we've, we've, we've pushed some of that work onto police. Civilian um, protection, human rights monitoring, election monitoring, uh, peacekeepers have ended up with work that they are not necessarily the best people um, to do. And we need to start taking some of that work away and thinking about how we can get other people like the feminist anthropologist that Sue's been talking about into these missions. But there are peacekeepers, there are soldiers who are excellent peacekeepers. And that's one of the other stories that I've tried to tell in my book, that there are countries who have actively tried to shape their military personnel so that they can do this work well and in ways that are deeply respectful of the populations that they've been sent to serve um, and in ways that also limit what they're doing to what they're good at rather than trying to take on everything. And I think a little bit more humility on the parts of the, um, the militaries about what they are best to take on would also, be, um, would also be valuable here. I think the other thing to recognise is that, unfortunately, um, these personnel are being deployed into often active conflict zones. And so I think it's inevitable that there will be soldiers as part of those missions, but we need to think about how we can rebalance and ensure that they're doing the work they're good at and others are doing the other work. That was Dr Jasmine Kim Westendorf responding to the complex question of whether humanitarian work should be carried out by military soldiers. We're going to take a short music break now to digest. Please don't go away because when we come back, we're going to be talking about a different aspect of the complex problem of sexual abuse inside the humanitarian community. Whether there are barriers preventing women coming forward, but for now, here's listen real closely. I don't understand why this world hurts so bad. Why am I scared to show? 
That was Listen Real Closely. You're on Monday Breakfast, 3CR Radio, 855 AM on the dial. We've been listening to a panel of expert women on gender issues in peacekeeping operations around the world. They've been sharing how incidents of sexual exploitation and abuse by military and civilian peacekeepers impacts not only on the individuals harmed, but also the fundamental trust communities have in peacekeeping operations. We're going to turn now to hear about a different side of this complex issue, the barriers to investigating sexual exploitation and abuse cases. Are there factors at play which stop women coming forward to report incidents? Here's Dr. Westendorf. Because of the diversity of the sorts of behaviours we're talking about as sexual exploitation and abuse, People can be very reluctant to make allegations or to raise concerns about uh, colleagues when they don't have a huge amount of effort, evidence because these are serious allegations, you know, um, but they are also the sorts of behaviours that it can be very difficult to try and gather the sorts of data or certainty before people report. So, for instance, a lot of um international uh, personnel who've been involved in a variety of peacekeeping, humanitarian and other um, uh, work in conflict environments would say to me, in retrospect, something was going on there that wasn't kosher and I wish I'd reported it. But at the time, I didn't know exactly what was going on and 
I wasn't sure what would happen to me if I raised that, you know, I know that this person lost her contract when she raised these issues and so on. And the same goes for local um, community members who I met with who would say sort of the opposite, sort of an adjacent point. They'd say, you know, I know this woman who made an allegation and nothing happened except she was thrown out of her family. So why would I bring this to the attention of the authorities? Why would I go through that process? So I think um, dealing with uh, investigations is one thing, but actually dealing with the culture that makes it okay to make allegations, to raise issues, so that investigators can take them seriously and building trust in that process is also critical. I think the other thing I, I think we need to do more thinking of globally is what, it, the, what options there might be for some sort of cross-institutional victims' rights advocacy or, I um, mean, you know, I'd like to say some sort of ombudsperson for reparations and response so that if people make allegations and feel that they are not being taken seriously or not being dealt with fairly by an organisation or the outcomes aren't fair, that they have someone to go to. That's critically important because of the enormous amount of individual um, uh, latitude for how allegations are dealt with. There are demonstrated cases where children have been raped and given a few dollars afterwards and investigators have classified that rape as transactional sex, not as sexual abuse and rape because of the assumptions and, and, and the whole baggage that individual investigators might bring with them. So we need to deal with, uh, you know, trying to create a level of consistency in this really messy issue as well. I think there's also a very real fear from some humanitarian organisations about how to deal with this because if it cause, if they are perceived to be abusing and exploiting, they could themselves become targets of um, direct violence and there have certainly been documented instances of that. So there's a complex balance, I think, on both sides of that equation. I don't have a great answer to that except to say that it is therefore a problem when we only look at statistics of allegations that have reached a conclusion that has found that someone has perpetrated abuse because many cases are closed as unsubstantiated and, in fact, that's because victims have been unwilling or unable to provide the sort of information that meets the pseudo-legal standards that some of these, and in some cases the legal standards, um, but often the pseudo-legal standards that organisations are working with through HR departments and investigations mechanisms internally. I think that means we need to rethink how we deal with allegations and whether this is a very unpopular idea in the discussions I've had so far, but should we be, should we be sharing information about individuals who have had multiple allegations made against them, mm -hmm. even if those allegations have gone nowhere? I know this really flies in the face of a lot of the presumptions around um, justice and, and the legal system, but in these situations it's critical that we, we work on this and we find a better way to deal with it. And I think that might at least start helping with um, not letting people get away with it or not letting those cases that are very difficult for people to testify about um, fall through the gaps. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 9419837. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. In our final segment of this important discussion, we're going to hear about some of the approaches that have been taken to address the problem of abuse 
first speaking is Dr. Helen Durham, Director of International Law and Policy at the International Committee of the Red Cross. Our approach with dealing with weapons bearers, whether it be the pre-deployment of uh, peacekeepers, non-state armed groups or the regular military, for many years was trained. You know, we've got to have the law known. Then probably about 20 or 30 years ago, we realised they have also have it in integrated. It can't just be known, it has to be in doctrines, it has to be in uh, uh, the rules of engagement. But more recently, and, and this uh, Roots of Restraint uh, research, was about the fact that it needs to be socialised. So we need to take that next step where we look at values. Uh, and I think that we're having a global debate about this matter at the moment, and sadly back home in Australia, I think we're looking at that too. You know, um, some of the researchers you probably know about from Elizabeth Wood that looked at why, say, in the US military, where there's a mass of work around the conduct and discipline approach to, for example, uh, um, trying to stop sexual violence within the Defence Force itself. You know, every structure was in place, every capacity to prosecute, every training. Um, and it looked at actually, it was the informal norms. It was the hazing processes. It was the way socialization goes on. Um, we this quite regularly. You know, we might give a, a very um, important speech to the military about the prohibition of sexual violence. And then one of my colleagues recently contacted me from in the field. Then they have a marching song as they go back to the barracks, which completely undoes the messages that they've just listened to. So, you know, how you can take from knowledge, which we still have to work on, from integration, which still has to be done, into the sort of things you were raising and really bringing to our attention, and thank you so much, about understanding internal structures, values, and how to embed it in a different type of understanding. I think the last 15 years have seen a real shift in the way the international community, particularly at this very senior levels, deal with this issue. I think there is a genuine commitment at the, the highest levels of the United Nations now um, to really resourcing, properly resourcing and supporting the work that needs to go on to prevent sexual exploitation and abuse and hold perpetrators accountable and to start rethinking some of the um, the ways the organisation and other large organisations are approaching issues of gender inequity and so on. I think that there's a couple of challenges. A UN peacekeeping mission is only the sum of its parts and once... A, once a mission has been authorised, the Secretariat, the Secretary-General has to go out with a begging hat um, and hope that member states contribute enough troops to um, launch a viable mission. There are some member states who routinely use sexual violence as part of their war-making and as part of their conflicts. It is not in their interests to stop their personnel or change the culture within their militaries to stop that occurring in peacekeeping operations. I think that really highlights how there are a lot of reasons why countries um, contribute personnel to peacekeeping operations and not all of them are about the the um, sort of the lofty human rights and, and peace and security mandates. Some of them are much more self-interested and cynical. Um, so there's a conflict there, I guess, in, in assuming that it's in everyone's interests to deal with this issue seriously. There's another issue, which is that UN peacekeeping operations are criminally under-resourced. Um, so mission leadership are, are expected to make impossible choices about how to distribute the pretty meagre resources that are, they are provided to try and support the sort of transformation that 
like it's enormous what they are expected to do in terms of the the support and leadership for security, governance, justice, human rights, and social transformation in a conflict context. And I've met with a lot of people who say, I get it, I I really wish I could do this, but there are literally people being killed in the street. And so I have to stop, you know, I have to resource things, I have to distribute resources to stop that first, and then we can get to this issue. I don't think that's the case. I think, as Sue says, if we rethought how these missions were actually um, run, how they were made up and and sort of constituted from the outset, we might end up with a different set of um, decisions and questions at that point. But I, so I can see why people feel themselves to be in such a difficult position. That said, there are others who who don't get it. Um, and I've met with senior personnel who've said to me, the rules around sexual exploitation and abuse are nothing more than white people trying to regulate the sexual mores of brown people. And the UN, yes, we should be concerned about sexual abuse, but we should not be concerned about sexual exploitation. Because sexual exploitation, transactional sex, um, prostitution, sex work, it's legal in some places, it's adults, you know, it's too messy, we just can't get involved in that, let it be, focus on the stuff that really matters. So what I'm trying to say is that it's really hard to give a standard answer because there's such a diversity of views still about this. And I think some of that also reflects the fact that there is such a, a patchy response to gender issues as part of anything to do with security, you know, broadly. Some people are fully on board and there's still a lot of conflict among others about whether we're actually talking about a soft issue or a hard security issue or, you know, what we ought to be doing. So there's a lot of work that's yet to be done, even though we have come a long way. That was Dr Jasmine Kim Westendorf, Dr Helen Durham and Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer, together with Dr Beck Strating, talking at La Trobe Asia panel discussion on the issue of sexual exploitation and abuse in humanitarian and peacekeeping efforts. We just heard from some of the speakers at La Trobe's panel discussion held earlier this year, Violating Peace, Sex, Aid and Peacekeeping. And if the content aired in this segment has raised questions for you or someone you know requires support, please seek help at either Lifeline, which is lifeline.org.au or 131-114 or 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732 or Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia on 1-800-211-028. And if you're interested in purchasing Dr. Westendorf's book, Violating Peace, Sex, Aid and Peacekeeping, it's available from Cornwell Press. 3CR subscribers are entitled to a discount, so check out the Monday Brecky page for more details. And the full audio of the Latrobe panel discussion is available on SoundCloud or through Apple Podcasts. The music we heard in this segment was Listen Real Closely by Grace Amos. And I think we're just going to jump straight into our next interview today. And we're going to chat to La Mama's CEO, CEO and Artistic Director, Liz Jones, um, who we've spoken to back in April. Um, and now we're going to have a little catch up and see how La Mama's getting on now. So, um, Liz, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Alice. No worries. Um, so we spoke in April, um, and at that point, La Mama was campaigning to to stay open following some devastating cuts. And I just wanted to see, um, firstly, how did that how did that fundraising go, and how have the few last few months been for La Mama? <laughs> it's been very very quiet for La Mama. Mm. Um, um, you know, since I last spoke to you, we've had two play readings. 
Um, but very happily, on um, tomorrow night at 6.30, we are opening with um, a motley Bauhaus, um, a piece by Ilnes Shezgilani, um, our beloved Iranian-Australian playwright. Um, and um, that will that will be playing for two weeks. So we'll actually have a, a two-week season. And because of Dan Andrews opening things up further yesterday, we'll actually be able to fit 56 people into our um, wow. Carlton Courthouse space, which is wonderful. Wow. Well, I can just imagine how lively it's going to be. Um, I mean, if opening tomorrow night, the hustle and bustle of the crowds going back in there again. It just must oh, be yes. so exciting. Well, the play readings that we've had, um, they were just sort of much more than play readings. <laughs> One was um, a play reading of three Filipino women playwrights, um, part of a workshop run through um, the, the, the Women's International Playwrights Movement. Um, that was wonderful. That was last Saturday. And before that, um, a, a group um, uh, shift, a group of, um, of, of women theatre creators um, who um, did this play called uh, what was it? No Exemptions, which was about climate change. And so we've had just, yeah, there have been play readings, but there's been this amazing sense of something happening mm. for the first time in months and that's... And, real live theatre, not Zoom, happening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we could only have 20 people in the space for those two, but that seemed like a crowd, you know, Mm. after after nothing. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I've got tickets on Thursday to come and see the show and um, Iranian Bauhaus is um, what it's called, I believe. Iranian Bauhaus. Bauhaus, yes. Yes. And can you tell us a little bit about that show? Look, I can't. Mm, I can't. Surprise. I can't tell you very much about it, um, except um, Elnez. Uh, I've been. She's been part of our life now for for a, a long while um, at La Mama. She's worked with us every year. She's a beautiful puppeteer, and she and and she's a, a woman who straddles um, very brilliantly. Um, the Western traditions and the Iranian theatrical traditions, and 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 those and really Persian theatrical traditions, um, and so uh, she her work her work sort of addresses very current issues, but but draws very heavily on that wonderfully rich um, Iranian Persian. Um, tradition of theatre making. Mm. Well, we uh, have we have Elnez coming on the show next week, actually, um, at well, eight fifteen. And you have seen the work by then. Exactly. You, so. I'll have yeah. loads of questions. I'm <laughs> sure. Because you see, this work um, was um, her first iteration of this work was done uh, in a little place. I can't think of its name, but a little place in um, in Collingwood. Um, and I didn't get to see that. That was about two days before the lockdown started back in um, back in um, April, mm. Mar- March, April. And I certainly know it was the, um, it was one of the last pieces of theatre done in Melbourne. And um, so I didn't get to see that. And, mm. and she has since worked on that. 
Um, and it's a whole series of stories which she has wound together and, and um, portraits that she's wound together. So that's why I can't tell you because I actually haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. I haven't read it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a great trust in Ilna as a, as a theatre maker because she is such an exciting theatre maker. She did a wonderful piece a number of years ago called The Birds Conference, um, which was based on a piece that um, the, the brilliant theatre maker Peter Brook brought to Australia back in 1977 called The Conference of the Birds, which many people saw. Um, it was a world-famous piece of theatre. And, yes... so. Mm. Yeah. So I'm very I'm excited to yeah, I'm really excited to go and see it. Um yeah. and yeah, then when we have Elna's on the show next Monday she'll be able to talk to us all about um yeah, all about that theatre. Um and Liz, obviously the the fa- the fundraising happening those couple of months ago and those, and that devastating the cuts to the arts, COVID yeah. on top of that as well. How yeah. is the how is the community in in Melbourne? Are they do they have energy now are they were they still creating in lockdown i i i promised everyone that we cancel this year that they could have a show next year i have this amazing embarrassment of riches absolutely everyone has asked to be reprogrammed so we've cancelled 44 shows and so (laughs) i have these i have 44 shows plus the shows i'd already said I'd program in 2021 so I have more work than I can program in 2021 (laughs) I'm spilling over already into 2022 Um, with the help of the uh, our our excellent um, arts minister Martin Foley who's now the minister for health um, a creative Victoria gave us very strong funding to assist people um, through the COVID situation we couldn't actually get money to them while they weren't making work. But what they have done, what um, Creative Victoria have done, is given us money so that as soon as people start making work, we can subsidise the fact that that there can't be 100% people in the space. Right. Um, and, and so we actually do have money to help us get over that COVID hump um, from the state government, which is which is excellent. So things things are not looking so dire now. We're just we're hoping very much that um, that we'd get some more federal funding because, as you know, our Australia Council funding was cut. Mm. Um, but with the rise funding um, announcements coming through, we're feeling a little bit optimistic about that. That they will actually give us some money to compensate for what we lost. Um, so at the moment things are not looking too dark <laughs> that's such great news i'm so glad that we're able to end the show today also with that really positive news from the arts in melbourne and yeah. um and yeah and i was just going to ask i mean you've kind of answered it there anyway but are you positive um and optimistic about the covid recovery well we have to be um what we have learned through this is is of course that we are infinitely flexible we go under and we come up again um and of course there is that we don't have a vaccine at the moment but obviously we're heading strongly in that direction um i have to you know we have to we have to be optimistic we have to think that this has happened before it happened in in uh, 1918 
and and it was overcome and and the community did come back after that with strength. We're hoping that that will happen. We've, we've also got the rebuild um, happening too, of course, of our um, beautiful yeah. headquarters, La Mama in Faraday Street, Carlton. Um, that's proceeding apace. Um, and and by the end of, uh, of uh, 2021, we will have two spaces functioning. Um, and and the, the second one will be our... Uh, um, our original La Mama with a beautiful rehearsal space and office space and garden space. Um, so, you know, we, we, I guess how we're feeling and we're encouraging our community of artists to feel is that 2021 is not going to look anything like 2020. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I couldn't yeah no we couldn't bear if if it did um yeah that's fantastic well i'm so excited to go on thursday night to see the uranium Bauhaus. um and yeah i encourage our listeners to jump on la mama's website keep up to date with what la mama i've got going i mean it sounds like it's just going to be constant and which is great news Um, yes well well, it certainly will be if we can if we can do it it will be constant yeah like almost 365 days of 2021. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Liz. And I'm Thanks, yeah, Alice. I can't wait to um, to come down on Thursday and say hello. That's that's um, yeah, great. And keep up your good work too, Alice. Oh, thank you, Liz. Speak very uh, soon. Right. We love 3CR. Okay, Woo-hoo, bye. 3CR. Thank you. Bye bye. And now we're going to head to um, a song called "Always Remember" by Dreaming Now. Ancestors asking many questions What are these lessons I compressed upon Now it dresses Fuels try prediction guesses Anyone's best guesses Now they got generations seeking mass convalescence Eucalyptus widow bar DBS shepherds Totems taken with no conscience or questions No concept or consciousness of things before the present Vacuous and empty like the windswept desert Heroin house under the moon crescent in the noon sunrise to change the present we arrange trauma laden generations fed up with the focus to be better and spacolony your resin fermented in these strange weathers some seeming to get stuck in quagmires vision torn and severed but original lines always remembered hold together in the now as we hold on to forever more treasures we always remember our always remember yeah, we always remember why Forevermore, yeah We always remember why Always remember Yeah, we always remember why Forevermore But some 
they lost frames, claim divine name change We arrange strange ways, submerged in haze Grey upon halcyon days, house unseen in the maze Destined two ways, left with the loot and skip frames Top conditions, formulated wild renditions Play victims in written cinematic systems But they got a dome messed up land covered in division Wild incisions, a carnage of innocent victims Why just sit and wait here for a minute Spirit get to floating, up beyond metropolis is river locomotion, hear the Trick release the pain beyond the hocus pocus Open heart release into the source of and devotion From eons before to the very present moment I just sit and analyze Reacquaint and scope but I'm still here trying to stay blessed Stand strong and spot Stresses trickle down horrific conquest Another warrior woman Just trying to get rest on this quest The work close eyes focus and catch breath Stoke and fire Containing ashes from the sacred pile With the life dripping down Create the spirit lot Yes and before um, Dreaming Now, we were chatting to Liz Jones from La Mama that have just opened their doors to, well, be opening tomorrow and um, launching their new show, Iranian Bauhaus, which I'm going to go and see on Thursday. And it's Excellent. just... You'll have to, yeah, tell us how it goes. Yes. Nice and to hear they're um, on the up. <laughs> so great to hear that they're back open again and that people and artists around Melbourne can begin to yeah express what they have wanted to for a really long time and express something so yeah fantastic plenty more to express now after exactly (laughs) yes so yeah um if you do fancy going to the theater check out la mama's schedule as i'm sure that they will have yeah lots going on now for 2021 every day of the week yeah it's gonna be busy but um that was the monday breakfast show and you've been live with me and ella Yeah, a big thank you to all our guests today and the speakers we had earlier. Yeah, and we'll see you next week.